so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series on our recent release volume, The Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, today I'm joined by Patricia Shaw to talk about our contribution entitled The Global Digital Marketplace, Engaging International Technology Policy from a Christian Perspective. Today we talk about some of the international aspects of technology policy debate, as well as how nations around the world are thinking about these important issues in light of their specific context. Patricia serves as the CEO of Beyond Reach Consulting Limited and is based in the UK, but advises internationally on AI and data ethics, policy governance, and corporate digital responsibility. She has over 20 years of experience as a lawyer in data, technology, and regulatory and government affairs, and is a qualified solicitor in England, as well as the Republic of Ireland. She's authored and edited numerous works on law and regulation, policy, ethics, as well as artificial intelligence. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Trish, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. And I want to thank you for your contribution to this volume. Uh, when we were putting together a project like this, kind of at the outset, I was like, I really want to have Patricia Shaw part of this volume. A lot of times because you're giving a very unique perspective, especially to the technology policy debate, that for many of our listeners who are based here in the States, not kind of fully understanding maybe a more global perspective, especially a more European-centric perspective that is very distinct and different from what we're doing often here in the United States. But before we dive into a lot of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. You have a very unique skill set and especially unique and kind of diverse experience. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in these debates and be part of these uh, ongoing policy matters? So a, a long story short, with a, a career spanning 20-odd years in tech uh, and tech law and being a, a lawyer both in private sector and private practice to um, in-house big tech organisations, I, I then came to a place where I was in being involved much more with regulatory and government affairs. And that really got me aware of that kind of horizon that's coming, that policy that's being made by politicians, by big lobbying houses. And the long and short of it was that I could see 
that people were trying to address this AI space. And um, there were a number of AI principles coming out from 2016 onward, but no one was addressing the AI governance space. And so um, as a result, um, I kind of felt that this was a place I needed to be working into, particularly with my own experience in AI and data as a lawyer and technology, and thought I could bring that to bear. So I, I stepped out into the big wide world of uh, consultancy back in 2019 and haven't really looked back. And where that's opened doors for me has been, I've been involved with, you know, governance, standardization, helping organizations implement the principles and put them into real practice and, and make that kind of workable on the ground for them. And, um, but also that brings my unique perspective as a Christian to the table as well. So I'm able to bring my, my own Christian ethic as well as trying to interpret kind of the, the principles that are out there in the world to, um, big and small organizations that are trying to navigate their way through the, the values that um, are being set before them. And particularly when that kind of value-based language is kind of missing. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point, especially in a lot of the technology policy debates that we have, whether it's here in the States or across the world, is that there is a set of values uh, that we're seeking to kind of put forth into the digital public square to shape a lot of these technologies, how we use them, um, how they're developed and utilized throughout our world. And I think that's a really important point. And one of the things, I, it's been kind of interesting too, because I think it was soon after the ERLC released our statement of principles on artificial intelligence that we actually connected via Twitter. Uh, we've actually never met each other in, li in real life or kind of in person here. Um, and so it's been fun over the last few years to get to know you a little bit, to work on some various projects together and then a real joy to be able to work with you in a volume like this. I know some of our listeners, less than last week, we had Nathan Lemer, um, who's doing a lot of work on U.S. tech policy, had him on the podcast. But a lot of our listeners kind of come from the States. We have a kind of an, a growing international reach, especially in the U.K., which is really fun uh, to see kind of on the map some of the downloads coming from there and some folks uh, who follow along with this work. But many of our listeners are based here in the United States. And when we think of technology policy, we just kind of think about a U.S.-centric or U.S.-based kind of understanding or constitutional realities, constitutional rights. We also think about a lot of these tech companies, some of the largest and many of the largest and pro most prominent are also based here, or at least were started here in the United States, but obviously have kind of a global impact or they have a global kind of influence on a lot of different um, countries and their affairs. So one of the things I wanted to do is if you could start off by drawing some kind of broad parallels, but also maybe some of the distinctions between how a U.S.-based tech policy versus kind of a more European-centric, like what are some of the similarities, some of the questions and challenges that we're both facing in our respective context, but also some of the dissimilarities, kind of the differences in how we're approaching or navigating some of those? That's a really good question. And thinking about kind of my own exposure and experience to the US policy framework, it's been very much historically hands off, you know, pro regulation, uh, so pro innovation, less regulation, allowing the market forces to, to work out, you know, how and where their values stand and to the bounds of competition that they, they can keep going and keep driving that innovation. And where I'm seeing the big difference is that the EU specifically is taking a much more hands-on approach. And I would even say that differs from the UK, which has also historically taken 
a very much more hands off, you know, allowing the market forces to regulate themselves. And I think the time of that kind of self-regulatory approach has, has actually come to an end, not least because of strong academic and research voices that have come out from the works of the likes of um, Shoshana Zuboff and her works on on surveillance capitalism, but from some of the other um, big tech disasters that we've heard about, you know, in terms of Cambridge Analytica, Compass, all manner of other um, AI and digital related international cases that we've heard about. And so I think that because of those big voices being heard at international level and these kind of cases that we're seeing before us, whether they've made it to court or not, the challenge is how do governments look to react? And from my experience of kind of the EU, the UK and veering further afield, that there's much more um, intention by governments now, I think, to produce that top-down approach of let's put in the safeguards, let's put in the guarder rails to help organisations structure themselves in such a way as to create, be innovative responsibly, so have responsible innovation in, in these areas. And that's really at the heart of the EU policy um, and the, the forthcoming EU AI Act, as we are seeing, and as we've already seen, the Digital Services and Digital Markets Act have gone through. The heart of it is wanting to keep these technologies with humans at the centre. And I think the other thing that is a differential at the moment, whilst I'm hearing both stateside and um, European and and UK and beyond side, this call and this cry out for trustworthiness um, in the digital space and trustworthy AI um, and trustworthy autonomous systems, I think the question that we're all asking is, in whom are we trusting? In what are we trusting? And what I'm seeing from the direction that the EU has taken and indeed from the, what the UK is taking is that that trust can come only from being interrelational between a human and an organisation also full of people. And so what, what are the efforts and, and the um, procedures and processes and policies these organisations need to put in place to safeguard that what they produce uh, in terms of outputs, but also outcomes in the long, uh, short, medium and long term, what does that mean in, in terms of building trust for um, the individual human, um, the groups of people and for populations? Where that slightly changes the mantra, I think, perhaps between more um, pro-market approaches to um, more pro-responsible um, innovation approaches is that why are we looking for that trust? Is it pure adoption of a technology and therefore money in the pockets of the company and you know, building up profit margins? Is it that or is it really to, to protect populations? So that, that's some of the differential I'm seeing. Yeah, and I think you bring out really two important points there is that kind of human-centric approach. That's something that obviously we resonate as Christians. That's something early on in my work to say, actually, we need to take a more human dignity approach, saying, you know, that central question of what does it mean to be human um, is central to the Christian ethic, central to the Christian moral tradition that transcends Western and Eastern cultures. And this is rooted right in the scriptures themselves and in the moral vision that we see uh, from Christ, even in Matthew 22, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, recognizing their value, dignity, and worth as fellow image bearers. Um, and so 
it's interesting as you kind of bring up how the technology policy debate shifting a little bit, because even here in the United States, we're having kind of ongoing conversations. I mean, even as we're recording this, uh, many states, uh, state legislatures have recently passed privacy laws. Uh, privacy frameworks, whether it was starting with California, obviously these are all kind of following after the GDPR there in the EU, but Virginia and other states are starting to pass this. This is really before many of the state capitals and also before Congress. Uh, There's a number of kind of privacy-oriented bills or laws or frameworks that are being considered through all of this. And I think that's a, a good understanding is that there's needs to be a person-centric, a human-centric approach to these technologies rather than just pure profits. We're realizing whether you're on the political left or right, especially here in the United States, that something has to be done. Now, we debate on what should be done, but we're all kind of recognizing the challenges before us in the digital public square, which is one of the reasons I think the Lord was really kind to see the timing of this volume come out, I think, about right about the right time, um, is that it's kind of entering into a conversation that's ongoing with something that's very substantive, it's very deep, uh, challenging at times, um, and it has a diverse group of voices that, you know, we don't all fully agree with one another, but we're all coming together as Christians to say, hey, these issues really matter. One of the things that you kind of have already mentioned and that you really highlight in your chapter is the lack of a shared moral vision. And I think a lot of times here in the United States, especially as Christians, we understand that is that we don't have kind of a social kind of moral standard. Uh, There's a lot of differing standards, differing values in the public square. But when you broaden that out to kind of a world's more world centric approach, uh, we have vastly different value sets often. We don't have that kind of shared moral vision. Um, especially to navigate some of the challenges in the digital public square. So this challenge is really spilling into the digital public square. Uh, So now it's not just we're having kind of bigger debates about other issues, but it's also kind of getting into even technology issues as well. I wanted to see if you could expand on that. What do you mean when you talk about a lack of a shared moral vision? And how does that kind of help frame up maybe some of the debates that we're seeing in the technology space today? So... With regard to some of the principles, whether they be AI, digital principles that have come out around the globe, there seems to be like this common language, you know, transparency, accountability, even the word privacy or privacy and kind of fairness. Uh, And the, the challenge is we don't have a common interpretation. And I think without having kind of shared interpretation of that, it's kind of hard to see how this is implementable and how this will be implemented when, say, you have someone who's designing some tech in um, Silicon Valley and it's being coded for you in, you know, Far East, Middle East, and then it's being deployed in uh, Northern Europe. And so we, we, how do we deal with that? You know, as we talked about right at the get-go from this conversation, there's values that are being designed, developed, codified, deployed in our technologies that we're, we're creating today. And I think what we can bring as Christians is solid perspectives on human dignity, human flourishing, what personhood is and how that personhood ought not to be um, diminished or undermined. Also the aspects of autonomy and human agency. And by recognizing the person as something of worthy of respect, worthy of mutual um, equitable standing, then what we're doing is we, we are creating a perhaps a more equitable and equal society around us. And I think from the differences we see across the globe, certainly from my perspective here in, in the UK, um, in 
continent Europe, it's important for us to always recognize we are not independent human beings. We are interdependent. Uh, you mentioned that much of tech is, or some at least the big tech companies started off life in the US. But this is a global affair. This is not a, a uniquely US or a uniquely UK or uniquely European affair anymore. This is a global affair. And I, I like always thinking about justice as and it's not just us, you know, in terms of this justice. And with the, the perspectives we can bring with if we were to engage in that shared moral vision, it would enable us to think about what the law calls us to in we to unchain the oppressed and set the prisoner free and protect the widow. And we are to loose the chains of injustice and untie the yoke and set the oppressed free. And we are to be good news to the poor. And so when we are deploying and utilizing and amplifying bias, discrimination, or um, inequality in our technology, and it's impacting countries that are relatively well off, how much more disproportionate is that for countries and populations and people groups that are less well off and have less of a voice and have less of an opportunity to speak out against these, or, or even thought, you know, in a positive way, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, anti-innovation, I'm, I'm pro-responsible innovation. Um, so for, for these people who need to have someone speak for them and to have a voice and equally to be for those people in, in this global world that we operate also to have a voice and be empowered with their voice as well, to be represented. And I think that that's the challenge that we face in recognizing this isn't just about human flourishing for me and my nice little comfortable, um, European continent world. It, it's also about what does this mean to people who are potentially digitally excluded? and have no access to, to this as much as they might have access, but then potentially get manipulated and exploited. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point. Is one of the things that we'll have Olivia Enos, um, who contributed a latter chapter in the book, we'll have her on talking about some of the growing rise of digital authoritarianism around the world. Um, this obviously isn't happening as much in the United States and even the EU and the UK, but you see in other countries around the world kind of a really heavy handed, not just a top down government approach, uh, but a complete and total control of the technology industry. And that's shaping um, and affecting many populations disproportionately. We see a lot of issues of free speech um, kind of tamping down on pro-democracy protests. We see this especially in kind of the subjugation of even the Uyghur Muslims in, uh, the, by the Chinese Communist Party uh, there in mainland China and Xinjiang. And so you see this kind of around the world. And that's one of the reasons I was really thankful to have you kind of from a technology policy debate um, and kind of way of approaching a lot of these issues, as well as having Olivia to kind of bring out some of the challenges that we're starting to see, especially in kind of Eastern Asia and places around the world, um, about the way the power of technology. And I think that's really illustrative to the debate that we're having today is the power of technology to shape um, and to kind of alter not only us as individuals, but also our entire societies. And so one of the things I think you rightfully bring up is in these debates, a lot of times there's language thrown out, whether it's trustworthiness or fairness or bias or equity or equality. And all of these, this language is thrown out. And it's interesting, you do, is you're exactly right. You see it across these frameworks, very similar language being deployed, but depending on the context, but also depending kind of on the individuals involved, 
whether it's a political party or an ideology or what have you, is we mean different things by these terms. Um, we often don't have that, as, as you kind of describe that shared moral framework. One of those debates is over human rights. This is a longstanding debate, even in the Christian tradition, about the nature of human rights. What is a right? Do we actually have a right to a right? Where are they kind of grounded? I know through a lot of my work on a right to privacy, which is kind of a forthcoming book project that I'm working on right now, is how do Christians think about that? Because often privacy, especially in the modern West, is grounded in the sense of autonomy that you rightfully highlight. But as Christians, we're not, we know we're not truly autonomous beings. We actually are fully dependent upon God and one another. And so where did, how does a Christian understand privacy? So I want to kind of zoom out a little bit to talk about the nature of digital human rights. I think this gets thrown out a lot, especially in these debates. So I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about the nature of the debate over kind of digital human rights and what's this debate about? Because I think for some, there's some rightful kind of hesitancy over using that language. And then others, um, I think there's some really helpful kind of aspects of that. So what do, what do you mean, you specifically, when you say digital human rights, what, are, what does that encompass and where are those rooted and grounded? So I'm, I'm going to start by saying it, it's really interesting that we phrase it as digital human rights. I, I think we ought to be better phrasing it as human rights in our digital world because we aren't digital beings, right? But there will be aspects of us that will be represented in the digital stratosphere. So that's just a first observation, but I'll, I will come back to that in a minute. Interesting about the human rights piece because I feel that sometimes whilst we have human rights, there's this lack of human responsibilities. And um, we do owe responsibility to one another. We, we ought to be looking after our brother or sister and looking out for one another. And I feel that whilst we have the human rights framework, and I applaud it because, and it's a shame we even have to have it, but I applaud it because it, for many in the world, this brings those all important guardrails and safeguards for people's basic ability to live and have their being. And which, you know, one would argue are kind of natural rights, surely, but the long and short of it is they are there. I think the human rights framework does lean into being somewhat more individualistic in their, their rights-based approach. So it's my right versus your right and whose right is more balanced and I can never exercise my right wholeheartedly over your right and you can never exercise your right wholeheartedly over mine. And then equally, we can't enforce them against each other because the way the human rights framework comes about, we have to enforce it through some kind of government vehicle or, or court system that enables that triangulation principle to be applied. So human rights are an imperfect tool, shall we say. Um, what this means, why there is even a need to discuss this in the relation to the digital? Well, simply because um, we are having the, the way that technology is advancing and enhancing, um, that there's a sense of not just my data self, but my digital self. There are whole elements now of how we present our digital lives in this hybrid life that we have. You know, many of us work online as well as have in real life conversations, gatherings and the like. What a kind of human rights in the digital world means to me is that that we should have the right not to be manipulated, the, the right not to have to be seen as data extraction tools, 
the right to be able to even have fair access and reasonable access to the digital because in some cases the digital is life a lifeline for many isolated in far places or have difficult situations that in real life that actually getting to be in the digital is not only a means of escapism but is actually an escape route I think of people who are potentially in modern day slavery I think about people who are maybe bedbound, homebound, and we're seeing some really amazing technologies come about in terms of AR and VR that may well help people with mental health issues or people who have or on the dementia Alzheimer's journey. And so these things can't you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But whilst you're implementing these these tools for good purposes, what we don't want to find is that that sordid, that negative and horrid dark world that can come from the dual use misuse of these technologies and and as you say about the right to privacy in the mix of all of this what does privacy mean and even the formulation of privacy in a digital space brings about new challenges you know without mentioning any particular brand of um, augmented reality or virtual reality that there are who is watching you who has access to the information about you if you're wearing a headset, who is seeing your eye movements, analyzing that, taking inference from it? How, who is looking at your interactions with your hands and how your, what your gameplay looks like and what does that mean? And who is using that inference and why? You know? So this is bringing up new questions, new challenges. And that's where I think having human rights in a, a, for a digital world is a necessity because what we have now is based on a, a, a V analog <laughs> and a life uh, which was in analog, which probably I'm one of the last of generations to experienced, you know, where we didn't have any digital growing up. We had only analog life. There wasn't access to information 24 7, 365. I did not expect to be watched 24 7, 365. And the sad reality is that this is all possible. Our movements, what privacy means to me, may not be what privacy means to someone in Middle East or Far East of the world. Well, for listeners' sake, I know the whole debate over human rights and the nature of human rights is a really fascinating thing that I've, we've spent some time on here, talking about here on the podcast. We also welcomed uh, Oxford moral philosopher uh, Nigel Bigger to talk a little bit about what's wrong with rights. We had his latest Oxford book. We were talking a little bit about that. We'll link to that in the show notes for listeners if they want to go hear a little bit more about that debate um, and some of the question marks surrounding what are human rights, what are natural rights, uh, what are rights that where we do have some accountability to a government structure, whether it's a local or a federal or even national kind of international type of body. But one of the things that you do really well in this volume, Trish, um, is you kind of give three kind of broad approaches to technology policy on a global front. So obviously, you're not covering the entirety of global affairs, uh, but you're talking about a UK-based approach, an EU-based approach, and then also you uh, add in Australia. And you do so kind of talking through four kind of big categories, AI, data, infrastructure, and connectivity. I wanted to see if you could kind of take some broad stroke approach to some of the unique aspects of this between the, uh, the UK, EU, and Australia as they're approaching kind of these big four topics um, about the global digital marketplace. That's really interesting. So with regard to the, those three kind of really broad economic environments, there seems to be 
kind of trend going on with regard to them looking for technological advancement. And one tends to think about whether this is technological advancement for techno solutionism's sake, or whether this is actually a case for creating more jobs, educating people more to um, science, technology, engineering, ethics, and maths. There are a number of policy areas in each of those jurisdictions and those economic block areas that play into creating um, more educational spaces in these for AI and digital and enabling businesses to take more risk, to move in and innovate in these areas and wanting to kind of drop any barriers to entry um, by enabling the first movers to gain a competitive advantage. So that's kind of one area of observation. The other area of observation with those key economic areas is, is with regard to sort of data empowerment. And there is clearly a differential between how data is dealt with in those three jurisdictions right now. And for those listeners that aren't aware, the UK, whilst having originally been signed up to the EU's GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, it is currently going through an evaluation process as to whether it wants to depart from the EU GDPR and and manifest that law and that data protection in another way. And again, to the point I made earlier on, you know, how privacy, how data protection is viewed from a UK, EU and Australasian perspective are very different. And I think because we're seeing these technologies come through, particularly AI, that rely heavily on data and are driven by data, then thoughts and understandings of what data is, what data does, and why it does it um, are super important in this space. Because on the one hand, it's seen as people talk about it as the new oil, gold, and think, isn't this a great tool for businesses? But don't necessarily talk about it in terms of the empowerment for individuals to be informed, um, have some control, have some um, ability to shape their digital future over what the data is doing to them for them. And, you know, tools that we see certainly in the GDPR are things like consent, data portability. And what we're seeing in the European space is, um, or European economic block area is that they're, they're creating these kind of idea of data spaces and, and data governance rules around data to try and help enable the use of data, but in a, a responsible and safeguarded manner. So there's the kind of data piece. I, I talked a little bit about trustworthiness. And the differential I'm seeing about trustworthiness or indeed AI and digital assurance right now is about the mantra seems to be a, for pro-innovation or, or people who want to or economies that want to kind of um, gain more profits out of this. They're looking to enable and release that trust for greater adoption of the digital. And that means greater profit margins and and, and ability for for businesses to thrive and survive. I think the challenge with trustworthiness is who are we trusting and what we're trusting them for. And this is where international standards have become a a growing area and there is a growing call for standardisation. And the US IEEE International Standards Organisation has been very much a part of creating um, best practices, code of conduct, code of practices, outcomes-based ethical standards to try and uh, enable and facilitate 
that growing element of what do we mean by trustworthy AI? What does it mean to have ethically aligned and designed and developed and deployed AI? So we're seeing that certainly from the US, but there is a greater call for AI assurance, particularly from the UK. And um, I think the EU is starting to wake up to that with the EU AI Act and other digital policies are asking for harmonization of standards. And so you've got bodies that have been tasked with creating such standards like the European Sensenelec body at this time. And I think kind of last but not least, I think what's quite my last observe, observation that I kind of made in the book was that whilst we, we say about this uh, in those three key economic block areas of the UK, EU and Australasia, the, the challenges we've, we've got potentially a digital markets power play going on. So, you know, we have the ability for there to be platforms that can be in one part of the world, but developed in that part of the world and deployed elsewhere in the world. And so it has this kind of funnel effect of how you access the digital and who in terms of suppliers have the ability to offer their services in and through those platforms. So there's a not only kind of a, a data play that, you know, in terms of what's happening with data and where that data is coming from and who's sharing it and why, but there's also this digital power play or digital markets power play. And hence, that's why I think what we've seen in the EU, the regulation of digital markets, and um, obviously further afield, we're also seeing that in the UK with online safety, and we've, we've seen it obviously brought before Congress in the US as well. So Trish, as we kind of end our time today, one of the things that I really appreciate about your volume is that you offer a distinctly Christian vision for navigating kind of international tech policy, saying like that, as a Christian, these things matter. But I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, that aren't like yourself, who are involved in technology policy, who aren't lawyers, who aren't deeply kind of uh, ingrained in a lot of these issues, it can seem maybe not esoteric per se, but something that's kind of kind of at arm's length, like technology policy, why does that really matter? Why does it matter for me as a Christian? And what can I actually do about it? I think of moms and dads, I think of academics, I think of neighbors and community leaders that may be listening to the podcast today that say, yeah, this technology policy stuff sounds interesting, and I'm glad some people are doing it, but what can I actually do? And so I wanted to kind of pose that to you as what kind of encouragement would you maybe give to listeners who may not be directly involved in this specific arena, but nevertheless, this is important for our common life together as a society? I think what's really important to recognize is technology is not going away. And we are creator beings and we will continue to think ever more creatively. And so for every new creation, every new invention, there'll be another new invention. So what we need to do is really step up to the plate. We must not be Luddite in our thinking to technology uh, or futile, should I say, rather than Luddite in our thinking. And we need to apply wisdom to the, the technologies that we um, see before us, that we, we use, that we enable perhaps through, in and through our jobs, but also um, that we're raising the next generation on as well. And I think to that point that this is going to bring about challenges as to how we live our lives, how we raise our families, how we do church, how we um, partake in um, our wider society. So we need to be informed. That's the first and foremost piece. Whilst not everyone will be in the technology space, everyone has a um, life experience. And I, I like to say expertise with a small E. 
your lived experience is not like my lived experience, it's not like someone else's lived experience. So we're all experts in that lived experience. And I think there's an opportunity here that as we see um, greater opportunities for stakeholder engagement with this new technology, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, um, we have a chance to bring those shared and lived experiences to bear as experts. And so I think whilst I'm asking people to think about being informed, I'm asking people also to start to get involved and um, not just let this technology um, wash over you, but to raise your head above the parapet. And whilst we might not all be experts in technology policy, we might not be able to all code, we might not all be data scientists, we might not all be lawyers or theologians, we all have uh, something to contribute to this debate. And not least, we have a representative view of our Christian faith. And so understanding that our faith and our ethics relating to our faith also have something that is very valuable to this debate, because if we don't speak up, if we don't have those voices represented within the technologies we use, then that they won't be heard and they won't be part of the technology. And we will have to settle for what is there before us with the values that it holds rather than the values that we necessarily hold. And I suppose to that end, whilst I'm asking people to be informed and to get involved, there is a purpose to that. And the Lord asks us to, that we must act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God and to be people that seek justice, truth and righteousness. And I think we can do that as we seek to use and gain benefit from all these wonderful technologies that we see, but make sure that we're not harming people and um, enabling people to be exploited and manipulated at our own hands. If nothing else, what I'd like people to think about um, who are listening to this podcast about how the digital will and potentially could transform lives, transform relationships, transform our culture, transform our society and transform our leadership. Well, Trish, I just want to thank you so much. One, for your contribution to the volume. Um, it really added a, a unique angle to a lot of the debates and things that we're talking about to kind of bring in that more global perspective. But I also really appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. I know this isn't the first time you've joined us here on the podcast, um, and I hope it's not definitely not the last. No, I'm sure it won't be the last. Well, for listeners' sake, if you want to learn more about the book and order a copy, you can visit jasonthacker.com slash books, or you can pick up a copy at most major book retailers, including your local bookstores, lifeway.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many more. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Patricia and learn more about her contribution to our volume, The Digital Public Square, in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Backer. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.